May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever tried to get a dog to take medicine and had to hide it in peanut butter? Or had to talk a small child into sitting still while they got a shot at the doctor's office? Then perhaps you understand what it's like to be up here on Trinity Sunday. As one friend described it to me just this morning, this is the day that causes the most egregious theological car crashes from the pulpit. So why is the Trinity so hard for us to talk about or to preach about coherently? I think it's probably because most of us in our normal walking around everyday lives are heretics. There are, of course, lots of fun Trinitarian heresies to choose from. I won't list them lest you find yourself identifying more strongly with something false than the truth. But we, I think, mostly practice what the ancient church called Sibelianism, or modalism, if you will, in which the persons of the Trinity are just seen as different modes or moods of God. So the Father is God when he's in that law-giving sort of stern mood. Jesus is God, too, when he wants to try on being a human being. And the Holy Spirit is God when he feels like letting his hair down and doing stuff that we don't really understand. (laughs) Sibelianism takes its name from a third century priest named Sibelius, whose writings are basically lost to us now, but still gives his name to this particular heresy. So the next time you're having a really bad day, just remember at least 2,000 years from now, it is very unlikely you will have given your name to a heresy. The Trinity is actually not just a description. It is the proper name of God. It's the foundational truth at the heart of the whole universe that God is not just one. God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three. All three at work together all the time in a perfect dance of love and relationship. It's like observing an orchestra where every member is always playing in tune. And God extends an invitation to us to join in that song, to participate in that relationship by sending Christ into the world to preach the good news. Now that all sounds mostly right. You've probably heard it before somewhere and would want to affirm it, but most of us would prefer then to leave that thinking further to other people and get on with things that are more important. Sure, God's three in one, one in three, but honestly, where are we going to go to lunch after church? (laughs) I want to suggest to you this morning that understanding the Trinity is a little bit like hearing a song that you love, a song that moves you. It has a rhythm and a groove that draws you in, that makes you tap your toe or puts a smile on your face whenever you hear it. And once you pick up that tune in the background of the universe, you have a hard time not hearing it underneath everything else. And sometimes wanting to turn the volume up so loud that it blows all other sound away. We need to understand the Trinity to help us understand the purposes of God in human history. 
the Father sending the Son in the person of Jesus, and the ongoing work that the church has been empowered to do by the gifting of the Holy Spirit. We need to grasp the mystery of the divine life because there is a vast world of difference between the Trinitarian God that you and I worship and all the other gods that are running around in the world. Now, it's often commonplace to say that all religions are paths up the same mountain, which is appealing even to me. But if we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who brought Israel up out of Egypt and raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the God who gave the gift of tongues at Pentecost, then we're not talking about a generic lowercase g kind of God. We're talking about the God who has acted definitively to invite us into the love that exists within the Trinity itself. But why does it matter? I want to use this morning three aspects of God's character to try to illuminate our Trinitarian understanding. So we'll start first with God's holiness, then we'll move to God's wrath, which is always a fun one, and finally God's glory. So we often set God's holiness up against God's love, right? As if love and holiness can't go together. As if God is too loving, then God will not be holy enough. And then what will we do? In scripture, holiness means to be set apart. But for God to be holy, for God to be set apart, it actually just means acknowledging that there's a difference between God and us. And that difference is crucial. The holiness that God has is not just important, it's also beautiful. Jonathan Edwards, the famously stern preacher, said that God is God. Very helpful. But God is distinguished from all beings and exalted above all of them, chiefly by his beauty. God is beautiful. And God is set apart from us because God does not have the ugly traits that can sometimes be found in our hearts. Pride and envy, greed and sloth, lust and gluttony. These are not characteristics that God has, but we do. They belong to humanity. And even when we love, our love is often misdirected focused on ourselves, turned inward. But the love that exists within God, within the Trinity, is perfect. Those two great commandments, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, are the two great commandments because they describe what the love of God is like. And so God's holiness does not cool God's love or vice versa. They don't dilute each other. The holiness of God is holiness for the purposes of love. And what we believe God to be like, how we understand God's love, has a really practical effect because it shapes how we think of holiness. If love and relationship were not the first words we use to describe God's purposes, then they wouldn't be part of our understanding of how to be more godly. So think of it like this. If God was introspective, and just a navel-gazing philosopher, like the gods of the Greek philosophers, to be godly would be to be more that way. Some of us are trying to manage that anyway. If God were violent and possessive, like some of the ancient Roman gods, to be godly would be to be more that way. 
And that might actually appeal too. (laughs) If God is prone to carousing and ale drinking like the old gods of the Vikings, to be godly would mean to be more like that. So the beautiful, loving holiness of God is what makes godliness so delightful. Because God actually wants to be in relationship. That means being holy is not about becoming more and more removed from other people, but growing to reflect the sweetness of God's own divine nature, that self-giving love that God has for each of us. Because that's who God is, not just on his best days, but always. So holiness, that sounds pretty good. We're all in favor of holiness. Wrath is a little trickier. When was the last time you described yourself as wrathful? Holiness is easy. Wrath is tricky because unless God is, God's wrath is directed at others, particularly that short list that you and I have working in our heads of others that might themselves be suitable for divine punishment, wrath is one of the things that makes us a little bit nervous about God. And if God was not the Trinity, that would make sense. If God is just an angry ruler who created creatures that then cannot live up to God's expectations, and then God punishes them for failing, just as he made them to do, then God would be kind of a monster and not worthy of worship at all. But because God is Trinity, it is not so. The God who is love can respond to evil with anger because evil is not part of who God is. For all eternity, the Father has been loving the Son in the power of the Spirit, To the point that out of the overflow of that love, God created. And so after sin enters the creation, God's anger is kindled as a response to sin. Isaiah in the Old Testament calls the pouring out of God's wrath, God's strange work. His alien task. And that's because God is not naturally angry. Sin and evil provoke him. God has his wrath, his anger with evil, because God is love. Parents, I think you probably understand this better than most of us. If something terrible was happening to your child, and you could do anything to prevent it, you would not just step back and observe it impartially. You would act to prevent the suffering of your children because you love them and their suffering troubles you. How much more must it be the case for God who is love? Love means caring. Love cannot be indifferent to evil. The father loves the son. And so the father must hate sin, which is ultimately a rejection of the son. The father loves the creation, the world he made. And so he must hate the evil that oppresses us, And that makes us captives to sin. That's why, in love, God desires to root the sin out of our lives, disciplining us so that we can be freed. That's why, in his love, God promises at the last day to wipe out sin and death forever. We're not God, not triune and not eternally love. His wrath would be like a toddler throwing a fit or a bully picking a fight with someone smaller and weaker. It would make God a lot more like us. The wrath of God is proof that his love is genuine. 
Not timid and removed, but active and engaged. His love means that at the end, the Trinity will destroy all evil so that we can enjoy God as we were created to do in a restored world. So holiness, wrath, and now on to glory. God has showed his love for us by sending the Son into the world for our sake so that we could share in the love that is at the heart of the Trinity. It's an act of self-giving love and sacrifice. But in Ephesians, Paul says that the Father has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. Do we need to glorify God in order to improve God in some way? We often talk about giving the glory to God as if God lacks something that we can supply. I have good news. He doesn't, and we can't. (laughs) And we wonder whether or not God wants something from us, whether God is motivated by a need to receive our gratitude and our applause, whether there is a deeper selfish need in God that lies beneath all this talk of love. Some people hear God is love, and they say, yeah, but what's the catch? God is already super abundant. God overflows with life and love so that when we give God glory, we're actually just giving back to God what is properly his already. God is glorified at all times, as in that throne scene we read this morning from Isaiah 6. The glory is magisterial and overwhelming and constant. It shines with a radiance like the sun. We see this all over scripture, right? When Moses goes to Mount Sinai, he comes down with a face like burnished bronze after seeing the glory of the Lord. We see it in the natural world around us. The Psalms say the heavens declare the glory of God. And in the Gospels at the Transfiguration, the glory of the Lord is reflected in the face of Jesus and in his transfigured likeness. God's glory is radiant, shining out, and giving life. The glory of God is missional. It invites others to find warmth in his presence. It is always an invitation. And that's what the inmost life of the God who is a trinity is like. It is light and warmth, and it is always inviting others to come in and share it. Because that's the very nature of who God is. That love that is so abundant that it cannot help but be shared with others. Just as in our own lives, we find ourselves drawn to those who are so alive with love, God is the one who is so comfortable with himself that he is able to love another and to share that love with us. Our faith is not primarily about changing our lifestyle or being able to rattle off the 10 most important things about God you've learned recently. It's really more about knowing God as God truly is, as God desperately wants to be known. We make the Trinity into a problem to be solved by using a clunky illustration. I could list about 10 or reducing it to a kind of unknowable mystery. But God is not a problem for us to fix or a Rubik's Cube that we can solve. A joyful and life-giving God 
is at the heart of our lives, at the heart of the universe. And this God is love for us and for all to the very core of his being. That's why it's really helpful for us to think about God in terms of aesthetics. Because within the Trinity, there is joy and light and hospitality for those of us who are desperately in need of God's invitation. God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died to save us. We reach for images to describe God because we're trying to capture what it feels like to be completely at home and joyful and received without merit at all. And what we're trying to capture always remains just a little bit further than we can reach. It's like if we went around the room this morning and I asked you to explain why your favorite song is your favorite song. You could talk about meter and tempo and all the sort of technical details that Cindy understands and that I'll happily nod along with. But sometimes a song just sounds right and you can't explain why. And it's not about the content of the lyrics or the beat. It's about the whole thing all together all at once. And I think understanding God is a little bit like that. Because we, when we look, when we gaze into the heart of God, what we see there is love. Love that is boundless and free and that is offered to us despite what we've done, despite who we are, despite what we're going to do just as soon as we get the next chance to. And that love, if we see it, if we receive it, it will change our lives forever and we will be transformed. All of us, whether we are believers or non-believers or somewhere on the spectrum between those two poles, are part of the grand orchestra of God's creation. We each have a part to play and a role to fill, something that we can offer. And the goal, therefore, is to live our lives in tune with the harmony that existed before the creation of the world, the beautiful, loving relationship among the members of the Trinity that invites all of us to join in. Amen. Amen.